Is there something that you were taught way back when that you 100% disagree with now? I was never taught. I didn't even know it existed. 89 to 96, no internet, no books, no magazine. Chance opportunity when my dad had gone to England and he brought back and somebody told him this guy. So my dad had told somebody, this guy tricks and, uh, you know, he likes adventure. So they gave him, a, I think they gifted me adventure education and outdoor leadership. Have you heard of Chris Lyons? Yeah. Great. So I got that gift. My whole world opened up. I said, wow, this is what I want to do. Oh, okay. That's a defining moment. Then that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that here it is. And this is 96. So I've been doing a lot of stuff and I think brilliant stuff. I look back at uh, some of the stuff. I still have printed uh, handwritten, what do you call them? Designs. It's just incredibly good. I don't know if I can produce that kind of work again from a research point of view of how of activities written down, my observations written down, my uh, influences and what was I going to do, that, all that stuff. So I was never taught. I I didn't know it existed until uh, somebody said, hey, can you come and do this in England? And I said, oh, what is outdoor education? And they said, you mean you don't know? I said, no, I don't. What you're doing is outdoor education. We use the outdoors to educate young people. I said, wow, great. You, you mean you do that there? That's it. Is there stuff that you've seen that when you go to conferences gets presented and you don't have to name names of people, but it's things you've seen that you say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you're prescribing is accurate. Uh, honestly, not yet. I think I can tell you why. Because I range as it may seem, when I encounter something that is different from what I know, I have never found it easy to say that won't work. And for the very simple reason that obviously that person has has an experience where they believe it works. And then for me, it's just a question of looking at what they're doing or saying and looking at how, is there anything that I can get from there that can become part of my repertoire? And I'm kind of single-mindedly a sucker for everything. Yeah. I do. Okay, so I will say there is one approach that I have never understood. And that approach is hot seating. So there is a whole world out there that uses hot seating as a methodology. And they even, the facilitators themselves, I know have even gone so far as to say that if you are not able to tell your story in this group, then you're not enough. And something just churns on me. And this is normal people choosing to go on a self-development program, okay? And I have met more people shattered by the experience than, than they have gained. The only place I've ever seen that, and it probably has reason, is when I attended, when I was in England in 96, there was this thing called Youth at Risk, an organization then in the U.S., and they used the tough love approach. Now, 
that was a different story altogether because those kids were going to come there. So these kids are all abused in some way or the other, and they're, they're at the edge of alienation. And self-alienation, society alienating them, and things are just not, nothing is going right. Now, and all their behaviors are all now, they're just trying to stay safe in, you know, in an environment that has been hugely threatening, and they're all between the ages of 12 to 18. So young. They were going to come for a week. Now, this is what I found really interesting. There were going to be 30 kids on the program. Do you know how many facilitators or adults there were going to be? Make a guess. So 30 kids. Two. 120. And we all went through a week-long program to prepare ourselves for when the kids came. I can't tell you how grateful I was. And the reason was simple. Every kid, every young person, had to have an adult with them as long as they were awake. So we were given shifts of four hours. And sometimes the kids would run away. And you and uh, there, there was one cardinal rule, no matter what it is, unless it's physical violence that they are up to, you will not touch them. So if somebody ran all the way out of the campus, you'll have runners, you ran with them, and a van followed. So you'll have this kid running away, mm -hmm. and you'll have these guys, and then a van following, and they allowed that kid to run, over, run as long as he wanted to, and when he was tired, then they'd invite him into the van, and we'd get back. Now, that's a hugely compassionate process. I understood why that needed to be, because that cathartic process that each uh, young person went through telling their story, oh man, it left so many adults just destroyed. Adults weeping, kids weeping, but for a normal person, I mean, wh what are we doing? Trying to take them through that process of hot scene. So that's the only piece that I am very, very concerned about. But it seems to work for them, and that's I, I don't know if it's the if, if it's the case in India. It certainly feels that the case here in 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 public school education that when we pr we bring into the school setting this notion of let people choose to speak or not, sometimes that's seen as very alien, and it's almost like the teachers have to be retaught to be okay with people not saying anything at all and staying silent. So I think that there's there's a societal pressure that our form of education isn't actually education. Even to an extent, I have experienced this myself, where I worked with a group and I haven't spoken for an hour. And then I'm like, I should probably speak because they're paying me. <laughs> you know, like there's that mindset of like, how much voice should I present to the group uh, that would validate me needing to be there in the first place? Do you have any thoughts around like how much speaking a facilitator should do? If I encounter, and I often do encounter a situation like that, the way I read it is, wow, that's great. I don't need to say anything because they know it all. So in recent times, I start by saying, look, there's nothing I can really teach you. You already know it, but you just don't know it. The only position or place I'm filling is that I'm going to give you a language for something that you've always known but didn't know. 
And if if people are talking, hour, two hours, three hours, hey, brilliant. They already know it. Every once in a while, I might just jump in and say, okay, so here's what you just said, and this is how it applies to the methodology. This is what we call it. Simple. And the times when I haven't spoken at all, and I think it's a good, for me, it's a good sign. Yeah. They're getting their money's worth. <laughs> because yeah. God knows when they step out of that space where you, where they felt safe enough to speak so long, just imagine what you did. You know, you said, yeah, this is your time. Speak up. And you're doing it, so that's great. I don't need to jump in and say anything because you know it all. I am a, a work in progress continuously, as we all are, but I think of that, those things of being my own discomfort, trying to not get rid of the discomfort because I think it's important to, to note it and be present, but to be able to let things go and not feel like I have to be the, oh, because Phil said this or this, you know, something happened that I'm able to let, get used to the silence, be okay with the silence. I can see myself still struggling with that when I'm working with groups and I'm there's either silence or there's a conversation going, I look at my watch and go, oh, did I leave that too long? <laughs> did I let them speak too long? Here's something you could try. I do it sometimes when they've spoken. I will often at the end ask them, did you know you knew this? And they'll say, what do you mean? They'll say, do you know how much wisdom you just displayed? And you think, why? See, now let's, this just, and then we look at what was said because people will say some brilliant thing. And sometimes our job at that point is not to comment on it, but just feed it back to them in maybe a simpler, shorter version. And say, what you just said is this. Did you know this? And say, well, I didn't really know I knew it. I just said it. I think it, it, it works really well in getting people to feel safe about speaking up. And then what could be of greater value than for them to recognize for themselves that they are white? And you're giving them immediate validation too, which is so powerful when anyone receives that. That's it. And it's true. It's not as if I'm putting on a show. The truth is that they know it. They just didn't know it before before they before you created so that's our job is create that space and then it be myself and my colleague lisa hunt we've been playing with this notion and i've started to talk about it in when i'm training people uh, and i refer to it as report out fatigue and i'm going to give you a little bit of the explanation on what i mean by that so i've seen the facilitators do this where and i've done this in the past often where i'll have I'll assign a question, I'll give them a reflection idea or a prompt, and I'll have them get into small groups and reflect. And they're and they're having these small pod group conversations, and I'm not, I might listen and hear stuff, but I'm really not there in listening. And then we get them into a larger group, and then we ask people to report out on what they discussed. Now, what I mean by report out fatigue is I have got fatigued about the process. I've tried to think of why I'm doing the report out. Who's it benefiting? Is it truly benefiting them? Or is it more about me wanting to know that they were talking about the thing I hope they were talking about? 
is it a check-in on their conversation? Yeah. What I've started to do is reduce the amount of reporting out that I do. But I'd love your your viewpoint on the the report out. I think it's a it, it's a method. It's one of those methods, but it also can be used in a different way. And I think how you use it or when you use it can be defined by what it is that you want to glean from. What is your purpose? What is it you want to know? And if you know that, then I found an, an interesting way of doing it. Actually, it's interesting. Is that, let's say there are four groups and they come back together. And one of the methods I will use is, I'll say, we're going to do a round robin. Uh, give me what you think is your most important discovery through that conversation. I give you only one. So you have group one, give one. And if group two has it, then I suggest that, that they stretch it out. Give me what your next important one is, or the most if it, it may not have been the same one. And I'll do a round robin. And one of, and at the end of it, I will often ask them, so how many of them were common? And it's just amazing how, you know, one of my last mantras that I gave towards the end, the four mantras, Mm-hmm. That we are a lot more alike than we think. That we think we, you know, a unique human being. Yeah, yeah, sure, we are unique. But you know what? Uh, not really. It's a way of saying we don't need to be afraid. That what I'm thinking, you're thinking too, is just you're thinking about it a little differently. And, and which means that we can have a conversation about it. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be uniquely different to be heard. That the, there is much more similarity. I think what I try to do through that is to get people uh, to get a sense of uh, commonality. It seems to help in building community. So the fear that people feel of, is this stupid? Is this unique? Is it too different? Is it too crazy? Washes away. I think that what you're suggesting again is what we, we said earlier, that it's the right tool for the right team in the right moment and... There's plenty of opportunity that I see well-framed report outs exactly do that. Validate the the sharer with other people. I love the notion of raising hands. Who else feels the way that they've just described? Everyone look at all the hands raised just to create that notion of validation with the with the statement. There was a YouTube that I did that with and and this was young boys. I did this and when and then at some point in time one of those kids stood up and he said, Damn it. We're not really different. Why the hell are we fighting? What an insight. Yeah. And that and that point you just left, I'm assuming. You said my job is done. <laughs> Do I need to continue? <laughs> if people are listening to this and they're new to the industry, they're emerging professionals. They're about to start on their their journey to find this as a career. What what piece of advice would you give them? God's sake, don't be in a hurry. Every act of facilitation, think of this. Here's our lifetime. It's a long line. Each act of facilitation and that moment of when you think you've got it or didn't get it or whatever is a blip in time. When you kind of take that 30,000 foot view, it's a blip. So, for God's sake, don't be hard on yourself. We are primarily in the business of play. It's serious business. And it's serious play. But it's play. 
So don't forget to kick yourself and say, oh, damn, that was really stupid. Now let's see what I can do next time. Too many young people are worried about doing a bad job even before they've begun. And I'm saying, you are going to do, do a lousy job. But that's what you're designed to do. You aren't born perfect. You're still learning. So get on with it. Don't waste your time thinking about, you know, how bad I was and, oh, I don't know if I'll be accepted again. I lose my job. Oh, come on. It is going to happen. The least you can do is go have fun. I'm going to connect it to these three pieces, which are conditioning. You're going to walk into that space of what you call facilitation or education or whatever you want to call it with baggage. You can't help it. You can't say, I don't want it. That's not a choice. And that, that thing is constantly affected by how you want to be seen. You want to be seen as capable. You want to be seen as efficient. You want to be seen as intelligent. You want to be seen as affable. All that stuff. Who doesn't want that? But if we focus too much on that, we will forget some critical pieces. Now, if your conditioning, your state of conditioning in that moment of facilitation is one of nervousness, which comes from wanting to be seen as something, then all that baggage of your past, of how you failed, when you failed, what happened, the consequences of it, all that is going to directly affect who you are in front of your audience. We use the word nervousness. Why? Because we are afraid. Nervousness comes from a fear. The fear of being accepted, not accepted, of being seen and whatever. That is going to affect your conduct. Now, is there a way around this? Can, can I prevent my conditioning from affecting my conduct? Probably not, because I'm all through our lives we are layering our conditioning. The choice that we do have is to just slow that whole thing down and say, yes, I want to be liked. Yes, I want to do a good job. Yes, I want to be seen as intelligent. But my history is not going to get me there. And the only thing that you can light a fire to in that moment is throw everything away. And just, I don't know how to say this, it sounds philosophic, just just be there. So if you are running an activity, watch them. Don't make meaning, just watch them. And over the years, you asked me, how, how can facilitation be taught? I think one of the easiest way to step into facilitation is to use that moment effectively. It does two things. One, you see something that the group is doing. Before you give meaning, stop the group and say, hey, did you notice that? And they might say, what? It's not your job to tell them what it is that you saw. Did you notice anything? I'll guarantee you there will be at least one person who knows what you're talking about. 
and they will speak up. It may be the quietest kid in the room and he'll say, yeah, we were not supposed to lose connection and we did. Okay. No more questions. Step back. No. Uh, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Our job is to create awareness in our participants in the moment that it happens. And if that is true, I must, as a facilitator, create that moment for myself. And that's how it can be done. That you step in there, you watch, you call their attention, step back. No more conversation, even at the end, saying you saw it, but you didn't do anything about it. It's all that moment has been captured in your mind, in their minds. They may make whatever choices are real to them in that moment. That is what I am calling consciousness. Just be there. Don't think about what question you're going to ask. Don't look at your list. Your job is to watch. That's it. Watch how you want to rescue them. Watch how you want to make it easy, but making easy is not solving it for them. Making easy is creating an awareness about how things are going for them in their mind. That's what I'm calling consciousness. And if we can do that, oh, it would be brilliant. And this is true not just in the field of facilitation, but in the most difficult conversation, to be able to sit there and just listen. And a lot of books and everybody is talking about how communication is such an important thing, right? I don't, I don't know, I'm, I may be tripping on this one, but this is what I'm beginning to sense. That, this, that conversations and the value of conversations does not come from what you say. It comes from what you hear, from what you receive from how you receive it. Who are you in that moment? And if we can learn how to receive well, whatever that means, I think we will make excellent facilitators very naturally. There was a little story about the Buddha that there's this young mother who's lost her child. She's in mourning and she's sitting by her child and the child's going to be put on the fire soon. And Buddha notices that, and he just, he just goes and sits next to her. That's it. I couldn't help myself think, you know, you know how the mind chatters, right? What is he thinking? Does he want to say anything to her at all? And if he did say something, what would he say? What can you say in anyone's grief that might be of value? There is nothing. Because the loss is so great that there is no energy to spend time with anything else for that grieving mother. He just sits, I mean, sits as long as she sits. And when she is done with sitting there, and she gets up, and she walks away, and he walks away. So for me, the romance of the Buddha has been with there, uh, been there in my head for many, many years. What was, what was going on in his head, and or, or should there be anything in his head? Is it possible that there was nothing? He was, he was, he was there, and while he was there, 
I'm guessing he felt the grief and he shared it with us in, without any words by just his presence. But his calm was a different calm and the hope that we can be there with our audiences in that calm. Wow. Romantic notion. I don't know. I can't describe it. No, but, but I think, it, you know, if we go back to the very first thing we were talking about, which was if you have that sense of play, people will feel it. The pheromone, the kind of like that kind of stuff. And it were exactly the, the same notion, but just with a different way that we put ourselves in that situation and how just, important just that was. Presence. Just yeah. presence. Mm-hmm. That's it. There's nothing, the more words you use, the worse it gets. I think that there's something about the consciousness that involves the word vulnerability also. There's there's some vulnerability to not have, to not knowing what's coming and being in the hangland. And it's and so beautiful that moment. So thank you, Vishwas. This this has really been wonderful for me. As I, as I've mentioned earlier, these podcasts are an excuse for me to talk to people, and it's selfish of my end to do that. I figure oh, there was a lucky devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was something that you said also in your um, address that said, "Ask for what you want, feel no shame, be ready to give." So I thank you for that impetus because that was also what led me to then in the moment. These are the names of people I wrote down who I wanted to reach out to after hearing you say that because I realized I need to do more of that. Just asking. Just asking. And and I, I, I hope that there was something that you got out of this conversation also, that it wasn't just a one way street. But yeah. but I, I certainly enjoyed it. And I and I hope that we get to do this again or at least maybe in the future do this in person and connect on a different way there to value the connection. Thank you so much, Vishwas. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about, thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast. Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs> <laughs>